Hello, everyone, and this is our second segment of the evening. Uh, thank you for uh, finding us over here. Uh, I'm really excited about our, our guest in this segment. We may go a little bit longer. I'm not really sure. But uh, for right now, I'm going to bring in, uh, first, I'm going to bring in Irene Priven, who's actually, hi, Irene. How are you again? Hello. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Yes, it's actually, <laughs> you're in the future from us. Uh, good morning. Uh, so you connected me to Ross. So I'd like for you to introduce him, if you would. How's that? Oh, okay. Well, um, uh, for any uh, viewer over in the United States, you may not know uh, that Ross is, I consider him Australia's Ralph Blumenthal or Carl Bernstein. He's a highly um, uh, respected investigative journalist with a long career. He's a household name here in Australia due to his association as being, I believe, the front man for 60 Minutes for over 20 years, I think it is. He can correct me on that when he comes on. Um, he's lent weight lately to the topic of UAPs or UFOs and brought it into the mainstream, um, which is very important for Australia because um, generally when any UFO, UFO topic comes on, it's usually something quite controversial or a little bit um, unbelievable to the regular viewer. And yet regularly um, you, uh, they use um, X-Files music and um, they smirk after the segment. Now, this has happened once with Ross in, in breakfast television that I've seen. They brought on the X-Files music, but he's transformed their response to um, looking uncomfortable. So uncomfortable glances at each other after he has put on, uh, provided his um, information. He's, um, yeah, we're very happy that in Australia that he's bringing it out into the open because it is less open here, as I've said before, than the United States to talk about the UAP or UFO phenomenon. So, um, yeah, With he's that, out, yeah. yeah, he's brought out a documentary which was on um, primetime TV and it's made quite a buzz. And also he's brought out a book which you'll be talking to him about, I imagine, at great length. Yes. And here he is. Welcome to the show, Ross. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, and you're telling me you are getting flooded with emails. I love it. Um, how can you keep up? Do you try to answer? I know it took you a little while to answer mine, <laughs> but uh, I, look, I've I've just been overwhelmed. I mean, I'm I'm very gratified to be honest. I mean, I've, journo's love journalists love engaging with their audience if they're a good journalist. It's fun. Uh, the difficulty that I've got at the moment is I have thousands and thousands of messages from people who are genuinely excited and interested in engaging with me. There are a lot of people offering information. Um, I've had an astonishing number of people from the military, the you know defence and intelligence area and the Air Force, civilian pilots, and I'm slowly working through the material. But um, every time I try and start watching and reading these emails, Martin, blokes like you ring me up and want to do an interview with me. So uh, <laughs> I've just had to put them on the shelf. But I do promise everybody that when I can, I will get to them and I will respond each to each individual message. Well, I was rather gratified to hear that you've actually uh, watched my show a number of times just to uh, do your do your research. And absolutely, yeah. No, it's, you, I, I, I'm, I'm a big listener to a lot of podcasts, yours included. I think you can't really begin to make advances in this area until you fully understand the subject. And I'm grateful to people like Irene uh, in. Melbourne and James Rigney in Melbourne. There's a bunch of um, UFO people in Australia who've taken me under their wing and very kindly brought me into the fold and uh, educated me about 
what I think is quite a phenomenal body of evidence, both in Australia and internationally, to warrant taking this subject seriously. Absolutely. And just uh, just as a side note, I, I say this um, often when I have someone from Australia on, but Australia is like my of uh, listeners to this show is usually second or third in the entire world. And you only have like 25 or 26 million people there, which is amazing. Look, I'm, I'm taken aback actually by the extent of informed interest. Um, one of the things that I think has traditionally made the subject of UFOs, UAPs taboo in Australia, at least, is, is the simple fact that people like me who have a, a reasonable profile as journalists, you do tend to get a lot of people contacting you with some really strange, odd, off-the-wall stuff. But what's interesting to me is that the people who've contacted me about the UFO unidentified aerial phenomena issue, they're often very, very scientific, very well-informed. They've done their homework that they've got detail. And my initial journalistic scepticism that I'm about to deal with somebody who's a little bit odd is soon dispelled because there's a, there's a real rigor there and I'm heartened by it because we do have, like you do in the United States, a culture of organizations that have been researching this phenomenon for many, many years. I, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with the UFO term because it's such a loaded term. People talk about UFO and I really think fundamentally they're talking about extraterrestrials, flying saucers, aliens. I, I'm more interested in the phenomenon, the unidentified aerial phenomenon. And UAP, frankly, doesn't even do it for me either because one of the things that I'm getting a lot of information about since I started talking about what I'm aware of here in Australia and in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean is USOs, underwater submerged yes. objects. Mm. And um, if you like, I can take you there. But there's also the issues of objects that are being seen in orbit. And this is where Australia plays such a key role with our main Five Eyes American ally, uh, you guys have got these gigantic bases here in Australia, the um, Pine Gap, the joint right. facility with Australia, and um, there's an enormous amount of um, material that's picked up in orbit that, uh, frankly, remains top secret unless it's talked about by friendly people who've been talking to me. When you say in orbit, do you mean like coming through the orbit or do you mean actually orbiting? Well, I'll give you one example. Uh, there's a guy who is named in the WikiLeaks uh, emails of the DNC database that were leaked by the Russian GRU to Julian Assange's WikiLeaks. Funny how it's all Australians, isn't it? And um, it's really interesting because um, in those emails, and I think it's been largely overlooked by people doing research in the United States, there's a lovely guy called Bob Fish who's uh, an ex-aerospace communications contractor with very high top-secret SCI clearances. And uh, he was contacting Podesta, basically talking about objects that he was aware of. He'd seen the telemetry data for these objects that had come in from deep space and passed in front of the DSP, Defence Support Program Satellites. So I contacted Bob because nobody had, and I was fascinated because he hadn't been interviewed yet, and he had so much to say. It's a really interesting guy who, who during his time 
in the service, very strong patriot, somebody who wasn't going to tell me information that in any way compromised national security issues for America. But he wanted Podestia and he wanted me and he wanted you guys to know that there are objects that are frequently seen in space that come, he says, he saw particular telemetry for one object which came in from deep space from behind a DSP satellite at very high speed, then it noticeably changed speed, it slowed its velocity, changed course, and then it vectored again into Earth's atmosphere. Now, that's not any known space object. That's not space junk. That's not a meteor. Meteors don't change course. They don't change velocity. Um, It's unexplained. And Bob was basically saying that these are issues that should really be being discussed and acknowledged. Well, absolutely. Um, you remember uh, the movie Independence Day. Um, they start they start the movie out saying, you know, this object is coming in from deep space into, you know, toward our orbit. Now, uh, the only reason I'm bringing this up is when something like this happens, you would think that the defense department, I mean, this just seems like a defense situation or possible, you know, we have no idea what that is coming in through the orbit toward earth it seems like we'd be readying for you know an attack or something but it's just it's just a commonplace look i don't know why we all in our movies our popular culture perceives something not human of intelligent technological origin we tend to see it as a threat and i think we've been acculturated like that because our movies our popular culture has told us that we should But frankly, it it struck me in the course of all of this and many of the people that I've spoken to in your defence and intelligence area have flatly said to me that if this is extraterrestrial, if this is intelligent, non-terrestrial technology, it's so advanced. Whatever, whoever this technology represents in terms of a civilization. Frankly, they could have wiped us out years ago if they'd wanted to. I mean, I don't absolutely. I, you know, I, I'm, I must confess, if anything, I'm more inclined to the perception that if this is an intelligence, if this is extraterrestrial or intraterrestrial or interdimensional, um, whatever, whoever it is, the entities, the living entities behind it, are, are benevolently inclined. So far, yes. <laughs> um, what about? Um, this whole thing made you start looking into it. I mean, something must have happened. Was it the New York Times article? What 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 made you decide no, as look, a journalist? I'd, I'd long been interested. I mean, one of the things that fascinates me in journalism is there are prescribed taboos in journalism, um, mm. the areas that you don't go, areas that you don't cover. And I, I, I guess I'm... I'm kind of weary of the political correctness that defines a lot of conventional mainstream journalism. You know, you're told by editors, by executive producers of TV shows, radio stations, these are areas we don't do, you know. And and it's not because somebody's slapping a a confidentiality order. There's not men in black sitting in the newsroom saying you can't cover stories. But what, what there is, is a cultural attitude that UFOs are a taboo, they're a stigma, they're, they're only to be ridiculed, they're to be ignored. And I was always fascinated by that because in my time in journalism, I've worked in newspapers, radio, TV, 
There's been many, many viewers, listeners who've contacted me and the newsroom to basically say, look, there's a really interesting story here about UFOs. Why aren't you investigating it? And the default is of a certain generation of person who are essentially the management of these organisations is to go, you know what, it's just bullshit, throw it in the bin, Ross, don't waste time with it. And I've seen this happen. I mean, as a newsroom um, chief of staff in a newspaper at one stage when I was a younger man, on a Sunday I can remember a woman ringing up saying she had a photograph of a craft that was hovering over Western Sydney, Parramatta, a big suburb in Sydney. And uh, I, got, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I'd love to see the photograph. And um, before the photograph was delivered to me, I'd, I'd spoken to the news editor of the newspaper to say, hey, listen, there's this woman who's contacted us who reckons she's got this great photograph. And his first response was to treat it as a piss take. Um, to treat it with ridicule, uh, not to engage with it. Uh, there's a kind of a default stigma that I find bewildering. And there are a few stories of that type in journalism, but prob probably no greater taboo than UFOs. Um, and I, I don't think it's justified, frankly. I mean, I, I know, and I have to be careful how I phrase this because some people have taken insult unintentionally conveyed, I, I promise you. There are some people who are mentally ill out there who, who in their psychosis basically seize upon UFOs and the mystery of UFOs and, and associate themselves with the phenomenon. I'm not saying that everybody who, who sees these objects are crazy. Um, but what there is, I think, is an, in a, a totally unwarranted stigma that's out of all proportion to the legitimacy of the issue that means that the media is generally wary of even engaging with the subject. And the reason I started getting interested is because at key times in my career, I, I'm, I don't like the term investigative journalist because all journalism should be by definition investigative. But one of the, one of the problems these days is that media tend to think like a pack. They tend to follow each other. And if you go against that pack and basically take a view that's contrarian or different, you tend to get knocked on the head. I mean, one of the debates that's occurring here in Australia at the moment is the efficacy of the government's efforts to deal with COVID-19. And a lot of renegade economists, for example, are arguing that, frankly, the, the, the benefits of fighting the vaccine uh, are essentially outweighed by the incredible damage that's caused to the economy and that, you know, the number of people dying don't justify the extent of government involvement in our personal liberties. And look, frankly, I think it's a debate that should be healthily had in any democracy, but there's a stigma being attached to the issue and there's the usual gatekeepers in the media who are basically slamming down on the issue and saying, you can't talk about that, you know, we all have to present a unified front to assist the government in combating COVID-19. But that's not our role in media. Our role in media is to question, probe, um, right. look, look for contradictions, look for inconsistencies. And that's where the UFO phenomenon comes in, because at different times in my career, I'm aware now that I look back, I've been presented with evidence to show that I should be engaging with it. And I, I've tried to do... I've tried to do... Um, uh, uh, digs in the past, but generally I've come up against recalcitrant editors, and and that's the issue. There is this taboo. Interesting, Irene. You have a question? Do you have a question? 
You got to unmute your mic, Irene. Unmute your mic. Oh, yes, thank you. I think it's interesting what you're saying about what's going on in the back rooms of the news um, media because the perception, I guess, in the UFO community is that um, there is there are agents at work that um, work behind the scenes to to cover this up. Uh, since you have been um, on this topic, what, what has been the reception from your peers and um, other respected journalists behind the scenes? Do you know, I've been waiting, Irene, for some snide journalist to go, oh, bloody Coulthard, what's he doing? You know, <laughs> gone crazy, become a tinfoil hat loony. I mean, I've had none of that. Um, really? I've been really, I've been really gratified. I'm, I'm a member of a group called the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which is um, a collaborative group of investigative journalists all over the world who share information. We worked on things like the, the Panama Papers and the Tobacco Papers, and the idea is to do cross-border investigations. And in the last few weeks, because my books generated a bit of publicity in that group, but also the documentaries being bootlegged all around the world illegally by uh, people who flogged it off Channel 7, the network I made it with here in Australia, um, I'm getting a lot of journos contacting me from Britain, the US, Europe. I had a German guy this morning and it's really interesting because they're all, I think, feeling more willing to engage because one of their colleagues is actually saying, look, you know, this is this is for real. This is serious. We should be looking at this. And I, I think in many ways what's happening at the moment, the dam is breaking. Uh, there has been this taboo yeah. for no good reason, frankly. I mean, I think... Martin and Irene, you'd both know that to get your brain around this issue, to actually understand the points and the significance of the evidence, you actually do need to do a lot of reading, a lot of listening, and a lot of viewing. And that takes time. And a lot of journalists don't have that time anymore. We're operating in journalism at a time when there is a diminution in the resources that are going to the media. And the only reason I've been able to write this book and make the documentary that I've made is I... I essentially stepped back from day-to-day newsmaking and I've essentially thrown myself with the help of a, an advance from HarperCollins uh, International. Um, I was able to throw myself for two-plus years into doing nothing else than digging into this issue. And frankly, a lot of journalists don't have that time. They don't have the resources. There's, you know, even major newspapers like the New York Times, uh, they've got increasingly less resources to do investigative journalism. And I've discovered that for my position in life, I'm nearly 60 years old. I'm, I'm, you know, financially secure. I can, I can basically take the time to actually dig and do something. Uh, in, in a longer form. And very few journalists have that opportunity. It's an incredibly rare thing. I, I bet. I, Irene, you want to follow up? Oh, just a quick one. Um, I noticed, or well, we all noticed that you called your, uh, well, you didn't call the documentary The Phenomenon. It was decided, I think, by a producer. Is that right? And was, there, was that confusing um, for the international audience? Um, between well, look, I, I mean, I, firstly, I'd apologise um, to um, uh, my illustrious colleague who also called his uh, movie The Phenomenon, that's James Fox. And um, we actually, I, at my instigation, the moment that I saw they'd called it The Phenomenon, I said, look, change the title immediately to The UFO Phenomenon. So there's a distinction from James's film. Um, frankly, I think the uh, the bosses at uh, Channel 7 in Australia who made that decision just did it on the fly, frankly, like most things are in an edit suite at the last minute. 
Um, I was hoping they'd call it In Plain Sight, which is the name of my book, which has just been released, by the way, uh, in Australia and will be released in the US uh, in October um, in print form. It's in Kindle form at the moment. But, um, uh, yeah, I mean, essentially when you're collaborating with TV networks like I was to make that film, you don't really have a lot of control over the... um, the sort of the the artwork and the uh, the titles that they use for promotion, and so um, uh, yeah, my sincere apologies to James Fox because um, I certainly wasn't trying to steal his thunder. Yeah, great. Um, so I have a, a question here. Uh, by the way, I wish I had your voice. You have a great voice. Oh, that's <laughs> for, very kind. For radio. Of you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, as far as you said, you, you really dug in for a couple of years. And I, I imagine that a journalist um, with the prestige that you have, you were able to get places that the average person can't get and get information that we can't get, you know, in the UFO community. Can you elaborate on some of that? Yeah, sure. I mean, mainstream journalism, a lot of people misunderstand this. They get really frustrated. I've had people in recent days sending me, frankly, abusive messages on social media saying I should reveal all my sources. And they're just F-words. They're just F-words. I mean, I'm sorry, I've got no time for people like that. They don't understand journalism. It's absolutely fundamental in journalism that journalists protect their sources. And, you know, I'll happily, happily go to jail to protect a source, even if I'm being ordered by a judge to reveal the name of that confidential source. Won't, Won't happily do it, but I will do it. And in this case... When I started out on this issue, I've already done a lot of stories on intelligence, national security. I've covered a lot of terrorism stories, um, defense. I've I've embedded with your military forces in Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, Probably the best area for connections that I made in the defense and intelligence area in the United States came because I did a big investigation into the Dirty Bank, the Nugan Hand Bank, which was a corrupt CIA front bank that was essentially laundering drug money from the sales of heroin in Southeast Asia. And it was being, it was set up in Sydney. It was incredible that this bank existed in the late 70s. And there was a Green Beret called Mike Hand, who um, a decorated and uh, very well-respected soldier, but he became a covert operative for the CIA. And he set up what was clearly, we can all say now, a front bank for the uh, for the agency um, that essentially operated as a, a dirty money laundry uh, for organised crime in Australia. And it did all the things wrong that essentially brought it to the attention of police in Australia. And eventually Hand did a runner. Uh, his colleague, Frank Nugan, died mysteriously with a gunshot wound to the head in his car. And I, a few years ago for 60 Minutes Australia, chased that trail because Hand had disappeared. And we found him living under a new name in Idaho. And uh, uh, out of respect to the guy, I, I'm not going to um, I'm not going to say his new name or where he is because, you know, he's a former intelligence operative and deserves to be left alone, I figure. But Essentially, he was clearly being protected by the agency. And even though he was a known fugitive, wanted under warrant by the Australian police, nothing ever happened when we did the story. And I eventually was able, with the assistance of a a very clever researcher here in Australia, we obtained uh, files from our government's national archives, which showed that 
he'd worked for the agency after he'd fled Australia. He was training the um, Contras uh, in the battle against the uh, communist Sandinistas in Nicaragua in the 1980s. And this guy was essentially an intelligence operative. And as a result of that, I was talking to a lot of ex-agency people, uh, old CIA spooks who knew Hand, knew the operations of the Nugan Hand Bank. So that gave me an in into people in the intelligence area in the United States. And it's, it's a fascinating area because one of the things I love about America is you can literally look somebody's name up in a phone book and with a bit of perspicacity, you can find them. And um, as I did, I, I wrote letters to people. I decided not to leave an electronic trail, you know, either email or a phone call, because I'm aware from another story I've done on the Five Eyes communications surveillance spying, the Echelon communications surveillance system that we operate under the um, Yakuza UK-USA agreement, the Five Eyes agreement with the US. I know that communications can be easily monitored and the metadata can be tracked. So I wrote letters to people and I wrote letters to intelligence operatives that I knew it had alleged links to the UAP, the UFO phenomenon. I wrote to people in defense. I ended up writing over 160 letters, I think it was. Good old fashioned snail mail. And it really paid off for me. It was a good strategy because in each individual letter that I wrote, I reassured people that I would treat them with absolute confidentiality. Um, there was a reasonable degree of certainty that their letters hadn't been intercepted or opened. And when I posted the letters, I guess I didn't really expect a huge response, but I was really gratified because within a month or two, I was starting to get calls on my signal on my phone, which is an encrypted phone comms app, Telegram, Proton Mail. You'll find my encrypted Proton Mail on my Twitter handle, Ross Coulthard, at Ross Coulthard. And I was getting some really good, high-quality sources coming in. And at the same time, I was traveling to the United States for 60 Minutes, Australia. Uh, I was often going to the States three or four times a year, and I'd often have time in California or the East Coast, USA, Washington, DC, or New York. And it gave me the opportunity to meet with people. And so because I had that background in defense and intelligence, I was able to get briefings from officials, former and serving officials. And I just started asking questions, incidentally, about the UAP issue. And what really struck me was as distinct from the ridicule and taboo that's traditionally attached to the subject here in Australia, there was a maturity and an insight into the issue in America that really surprised me. This is right back in 2015, 2016. And one of them actually suggested to me that I contact a guy called Chris Mellon. And this was back in late 2015. And I actually wrote to Chris Mellon and um, he very kindly agreed to talk to me. And one of my great frustrations is we were literally a day from hopping on the plane to fly to do a UFO story with Chris Mellon for Australian 60 Minutes sometime in, I think, early 2017, well before the founding and the announcement of TTSA. And well before, by the way, the New York Times got the scoop with the um, Tic Tac video and all the other videos. And uh, my then editor uh, got cold feet. They weren't interfered with by men in black. They just got cold feet. And as they explained to me, they said, look, Ross, I'm, 
I'm just worried we're going to get ridiculed if we do this story. You know, UFOs is such a taboo subject. I really don't think we should be going there. I don't think we've got enough to justify doing a dig. And I remember saying, this, this is a, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence for the United States Defence Department. And he wants to talk to me about how UFOs, UAPs are a real thing and that we should, as media, be taking them seriously. I said, what's, what's wrong with that? And um, ultimately, they chickened out. And, and it's a big issue. You've got to have a strong editor. And I was very, very lucky in the end that uh, Channel 7 Australia, which is a rival network to 60 Minutes' network, they, um, as soon as I pitched them a UFO story, they wouldn't leave me alone. They were very, very keen. And you know why? Because UFOs rate their socks off. And that's the other thing. The wisdom of the crowd, the public, as always, uh, years ahead of the stupid media and... Um, and ultimately, I've been gratified by the level of response I've been getting to the book and to the documentary, because there always was and there is a huge audience for UFO issues out there. And you know what? They're not crazy. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, I was I I was lucky enough to be the first one to interview Chris on the Chris Mellon on that on this subject, which was. Um, I can't remember. Where, I thought it was 2015, but I'm, I, I may be wrong. Look, my uh, dates are probably skewy. I can't remember either. But yeah. um, I mean, it was certainly 2015, 2016 when Chris first started sticking his head up. I think I'd heard That's him on right. Rojas. I think uh, Alejandro Rojas had had him on. And yeah. um, as yeah. soon as I heard him there, I thought, wow, I've got to talk to this guy. And um, yeah. I think I might, now, have even, might have even heard your one, mate. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot of views on that on the YouTube one that. Now, I imagine that you may have had some of these people that you've spoken to say, look, I'll tell you this, but it's off record. Did you have that type of thing happen? 90% of my sources on this story are people who've only agreed to speak to me on an anonymous basis because uh, many of them are 90% because many of them are serving officials. Uh, I've, I've spoken to people who purport I'm not saying they are for sure because I don't know, but I've spoken to people who purport to be part of what they refer to in many cases as the program. Uh, and when mm. they're talking about the program, they're talking about a, an active scientific investigation into re-engineering or back-engineering technology that they believe is not of this world. As I say that, Whoa. my heart my heart skips a little because yeah. I think, okay, now I really have entered into the tinfoil hat area because, <laughs> um, I mean, it's you know, once you say that, you know, you're you're going into an area that really is taboo. You know, um, I, I yeah, talk but about you're, you're repeating what someone said. It's not like you're saying it. You know, well, right? as I, as, I, as I said to somebody the other day, I, I had a phone call from a very well respected British journalist on a major British newspaper and. Um, uh, I'll just take my take the piss out of my pommy colleagues for a moment. You know, Ross, old boy, what 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 the hell's going on? Why, why are you doing a story about UFOs? And I go, because they're real, mate. And he goes, well, who says? And I said, the Pentagon, mate. 
the bloody Pentagon's saying they're real, you know, and he went, where? And I went, okay, have a look at the UAP report to Congress, which is acknowledging that there is a mysterious phenomenon that they can't explain. 143 out of 144 incidents where US fighter pilots, aviators, commercial pilots have seen anomalous objects doing speeds, manoeuvres far beyond known human technology. There is an acknowledgement there of a mystery that cannot be explained. Yes, but they're not saying they're flying saucers, Ross. And I go, well, I'm not saying it's flying saucers either, mate. I'm saying that there is a genuine phenomenon. There is a genuine mystery out there. Somebody, something is operating anomalous technology that is far beyond known, acknowledged human technology. So you're saying it's alien. No, I'm not saying it's alien. So there's this weird roundabout conversation where in the end he sort of went away scratching his head because he could see my point. And this is, you know, a columnist who's probably going to write for one of Britain's most eminent newspapers at some stage in the next few weeks. And essentially, I gave him a hearing. I said I tried to give him a primer in in um, understanding why it does need to be taken seriously. And when I took him through the, I mean, you've only got to go through the the USS Nimitz Tic Tac story, for example, the 2004 Nimitz story. I mean, you know, you've got fighter pilots of the calibre of Dave Fravor, um, Charles Kurth, um, uh, Alex Dietrichs, and they're describing a phenomenon that is just completely unknown to them as experienced aviators. And for the debunkers and the sceptics who tediously assert, oh, yeah, they're just humans, you know, witnesses have problems, then you've got the Kevin Days of this world who are sitting in front of the world's best radar systems, the phased array radar systems, multiple systems on different ships. He's on the um, guided weapons destroyer, um, uh, what is it, the USS Princeton. And there are multiple other phased array systems, including on an E-2 Hawkeye aircraft that is also engaging with, and I'm told, eyeballing with human eyeballs, this phenomenon. And ultimately, when you see the the concatenation of evidence, which basically shows that there is an abundance of evidence to show that a multitude of different sensors, videos, Apfler imaging, radar, and human eyeballs saw a phenomenon that cannot be explained. And as the US Pentagon admitted in April last year, no, 2020, yeah, it was, it's 2020. Um, they basically said they couldn't explain the uh, Tic Tac video, the Gimbal video, the GoFast video, and they'd looked at every prosaic explanation. That's a moment when I think any journalist in the mainstream really has to go, okay, this is for real, this is serious. We have to start looking at this issue and engaging with it and taking it seriously. And when the issue's raised at Pentagon briefings, people have got to stop that pathetic pathetic, childish ridicule, that stupid titter, because they're being manipulated. And, and this is the other area that I found fascinating, is when you go back and look at the archives of the CIA and go back and look at the Defence Department files from the 50s and the 60s, you can see that there was genuine rising concern, for whatever reason, inside the Defence Department, that certain UFO organizations and former senior defense officials like Roscoe Hillencotter, the former director of the CIA, a founding director of the CIA, were principals in NICAP, you know, essentially 
right at the forefront of you know the Lou Elizondos of their day, instigating calls for greater transparency and explanation from the US government about the UAP phenomenon. And what happened? What was the response? The documents show overwhelmingly that the US government instigated ridicule, stigma, and contempt for the subject. The media was manipulated. And that's the issue. The media don't realize why they titter, why they giggle when this when this whole subject is approached. The reason they do is because they've been played. They've been played by an intelligence service that essentially decided to shut this issue down for no good reason. The public were lied to after public blue We were told that the US Air Force had ceased investigations into the phenomenon, that they were no longer interested in UAPs as a national security issue, that um, there was no threat to flight safety. That is and was a lie. And we know it's a lie because the report to Congress has acknowledged that there is a flight safety issue. There have been 11 near misses with these pilots that have reported these 144 incidents. I know a lot more. Um, uh, They've been unable to explain 143 out of those 144 incidents. That's important. And so we know know that for the last six decades, since the closure of Project Blue Book, the US never stopped investigating UAPs. That's right. That's right. I just want to read you uh, a headline, and this is from the physicist... Uh, Lawrence Krauss, um, an article that came out in July after the report came out. The title to his article is, Whatever It Is, It Ain't Aliens. What do you think of that title? Look, I I mean, that to me is the most unscientific assertion. Uh How does he possibly know that? I mean, as the UAP report to Congress itself contemplates, one possible, albeit it suggests it's less possible than others, one possible explanation is extraterrestrial. And the fact that you have scientists of the calibre of Lawrence Krauss, I I don't for the moment doubt that he's a highly credentialed and well-respected scientist, but it's it's unscientific to make such assertions. And this is the thing is, Conventional science doesn't, and this was a realisation for me, you know, one of the greatest gifts from the Enlightenment was this notion that science is a thing, that that essentially we shouldn't have um, superstitious belief, that we should have a basis for what we know, not what we believe. Ufology is not a religion. It's a science. It's a study of a phenomenon that is unexplained. So we we shouldn't be asking people, as I'm often asked tediously in uh, dinner parties, you know, do you believe in flying saucers? Do you believe in UFOs? And I go, look, my belief's not relevant. Belief's not the issue. And it's not good science to talk about belief. And so when you have people making unscientific assertions, unscientific assertions that there is a, um, uh, you know, no basis for it to be alien, well, that's just bullshit. It's just a scientist sticking his head up his ass. Right. Yes, absolutely. We're we're um, we are getting a lot of people are trying to post comments. Uh, I'm not going to. I just don't feel as though we're going to ta- going to take any calls. However, uh, for those of you watching live, we are going to go an extra half hour. Um, 
you're still up for that, Ross? Are you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Um, All right. Very happy. So we're going to go. Uh, we're going to go uh, about uh, about uh, fifty minutes from now, or thereabouts, uh, longer. Um, so Irene has a question next, but first of all, I just want to post a question from the chat because this woman always uh, has been uh, listening to the show forever. And she wants to know, have you ever had any experience of, of any type on your own in your own life? No, I haven't. No, there's nothing that's prompted me from personal experience to believe that there is a paranormal phenomenon that I should be investigating. The um, Probably the earliest incident that I'm aware of is the Kaikoura UFO incident in New Zealand in December 1978 when I was a 16-year-old boy. And it's quite a well-known incident, but it was kind of overshadowed by an incident that had happened a month or two earlier involving the disappearance in Melbourne or from Melbourne of a pilot by the name of Frederick Valentich. And he disappeared over Bass Strait en route to an island on on the way to Tasmania, en route to an island where his plane he believed, he, he asserted on the audio that was um, recorded by the air traffic control in Melbourne, he believed there was some kind of craft hovering overhead. Very, very dramatic story because literally yes. his last his last words were, it's not an aircraft. And right. you know, he described this giant metallic object. That had happened about a month or so before the Kaikoura UFO sighting. And so as a cynical science-trained 16-year-old who thought he knew everything. Um, When I heard about the Kaikoura UFO incident in December 1978, um, I was really sceptical. I was really, really cynical. And so when our Prime Minister of the day, Robert Muldoon, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, came out and reported confidently that the New Zealand Air Force had basically determined that these people that had claimed to have uh, filmed Uh, craft or objects coming up near their plane, they were misconceived. They'd misidentified squid boat lights, fishing boat lights, (laughs) reflecting off clouds. And either that or the planet Venus had had essentially refracted in a way that meant that they'd misconceived what they saw. And in, I guess, my naivety, that's what I accepted as a 16-year-old. And it, it wasn't until... Uh, I became a journalist and started looking into that episode. And there were a couple of turning points for me. One was I met an air traffic controller at Wellington Airport, which was 40 or 50 miles across Cook Strait, but had clear line of sight by radar to the location where this cargo aircraft had engaged with these mysterious lights. And you can actually see these lights if you just Google Kaikoura, K-A-I-K-O-U-R-A, Kaikoura Lights, 1978, Quentin Fogarty, Q-U-E-N-T-I-N, Fogarty, F-O-G-A-R-T-Y. And Quentin was an Australian cameraman who just happened to be in New Zealand on holiday with his um, with his family for Christmas. And uh, he got dispatched because there'd been a sighting, I think, the night before by the pilot who'd reported it. And uh, he hopped on the plane with the pilot and went back with him on the way back to Blenheim, which is a little town in the north of the South Island of New Zealand. And on the way back, they they filmed these objects. 
And I guess as a 16-year-old, when I saw the reports confidently asserting from our defence forces in New Zealand that there was nothing to worry about, people should just reassure themselves that it was all easily explained and the, the, the people who'd videoed this and made a big song and dance about it clearly had UFO fever and were caught up in the hysteria from the Valentich case. It wasn't until a few years later that I began doing my own digging Um Notably, I spoke to Quentin Fogarty, the, the filmmaker, and he convinced me that what he filmed was not just distant lights. He and Dennis Grant, who was another reporter who was on the plane with him, a very well-respected political correspondent in Australia in his day, they'd actually seen um, the reflections of the plane on the water. It was such a clear night. You know, This notion that there were reflections off clouds were absurd. And when we looked at the positions of the planet Venus on the night, it was just completely inconsistent with any plausible explanation by the Air Force. And then John Cordy, the air traffic controller that I spoke to from Wellington Airport, he was the pièce de résistance because we'd been told in the New Zealand Air Force report that the Wellington radar was faulty that night. And uh, John Cordy said to me, that's just rubbish. It's absolute bullshit. He said, my, my radar set was working perfectly and I know what I saw. And he said, there were certainly no fishing boats at 14,000 feet, which is where this plane <laughs> was. And he said, I, I was talking to Quentin Fogarty and Dennis Grant and the pilot, Captain Startup, Bill Startup, and we could actually see these objects on radar manoeuvring around the plane in exactly the position that they were reporting they were seeing on their plane's radar and with their naked eyeball. And uh, to this day, the Kaikoura lights remain a mystery. I know one of your most eminent um, investigators, Bruce Maccabee, has done a lot of work on this, and uh, it, it should be acknowledged that, that I think he's reached very much the same conclusion as I, that, that essentially the Kaikoura Lights UFO incident was essentially for me uh, and a lot of people in New Zealand a kind of a foundation moment where you suddenly realised that governments didn't necessarily tell you the truth about what happened. And I became privy to the fact that um, the Americans had had a role in dampening down coverage of the issue. I had a brief conversation with the former Prime Minister, Robert Muldoon, many years later, and uh, Muldoon actually admitted to me that the Americans had been involved at a very intense level in discussions about what the public should be told about the Kaikoura UFO. So it made me realise that the, the agencies of the state, for some reason, were trying to dampen down awareness of the UFO issue. And that, I suppose, twigged my senses. It made me suspicious. It made me think, gosh, there might be something to this. I should look at this as a journalist. Very, very interesting, all of that. Um, uh, I had never heard of that case, and I'm, I'm going to, to look into it. Here's uh, Irene's got a question. Again, I just want to post this one more chat question up here uh, from Jules. Uh, what do you think about the media relatively quiet since the reports released prior to the lease? We were getting leaks every other day. Look, uh, I, I'm really worried at the moment that um, there is a great story there. I'm in no doubt at all that the phenomenon, whatever it is, is real, that there is a genuine anomalous mystery of objects doing crazy things in our skies. 
And I think as a mainstream media investigative journalist, this warrants intense media investigation. I, I don't for the life of me know why people, uh, as I saw recently at the Pentagon, somebody asked a question at the Pentagon press briefing and there was this kind of nervous titter that took place as the question was asked because it was about UFOs. And even the spokesperson, this Pentagon spokesperson, sort of treated it with kind of mock irony as they answered. Um, frankly, I think what's still happening is there is a bit of a backlash happening inside the Defence Department. My own sources tell me that there is an attempt by the US Air Force to shut this whole issue down. They don't want this. Uh, and if, frankly, if, if American citizens want congressional hearings, they're going to have to scream for them. They're going to have to make sure they push hard for them because it's by no means a certainty. And even though you've got good people like Chris Mellon and Lou Elizondo and others in the Congress who I've also spoken to who are pushing for congressional hearings, one, I don't think you can assume that they will happen at all, or I don't think you can assume that they will be public hearings. Um, there are people in certain sections of the military, notably the US Air Force, who I'm told are trying to shut this issue down. And yeah, you're not seeing any leaks at the moment because there is a, uh, a very determined effort to shut this story down. And uh, leaks only happen if officials feel safe about leaking stuff. And when you have the, the vengeance of the state being wreaked on anyone who breaches a special access program by talking about... Um, uh, you know, uh, 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 a secure defence project, then I can understand why. One of the things I've actually sort of said quite openly in the last few weeks is, as a journalist, I feel a responsibility to make sure that uh, we don't do stories that prejudice national security issues. If there's a legitimate national security concern that, or a public safety concern that needs to be protected, by protecting the release of certain information, then let's hear it. I mean, I've, I've invited people privately uh, at a senior level in, in various of your three-letter agencies to explain to me why we shouldn't do this story. And I'm not convinced that the reason why people are trying to shut this down isn't out of extraordinary embarrassment that this issue is finally coming out into the open. I suspect it's as simple as there are people in the United States Air Force who are either worried about their own position or who are frankly embarrassed about having to admit that there is this advanced technology operating in our skies, oceans and orbit that they, they have absolutely no power over because so much of America's sense of itself is based on a notion of military dominance, of hegemony. And um, what this advanced technology, that's what it is, represents is something that is way beyond known human technology, including America, including Russia, including China. And um, let's assume that there isn't some dark conspiracy inside the US military hiding a back engineering project, which I'm sceptical about, but let's assume that there isn't. Um, maybe the most plausible explanation is that there is um, a group of officials in the US Air Force who frankly just don't want to have to face up to acknowledging that to the American public because it's embarrassing. We're spending trillions of dollars, or at least you guys, actually we are too in Australia. We've bought your F-22 and your F-35 and we're spending a fortune on you know the latest advanced aerospace technology from our ally America. And um, frankly, it it doesn't cut it against whatever this phenomenon is. It's run rings around it. Um, 
you know, the Tic Tac UFO uh, literally stuck its tongue out at the most advanced fighters of the day in 2004 and, um, you know, ran them into the dust. Uh, that's a really interesting thing that maybe if I was the head of the U.S. Air Force, I wouldn't want talked about much either. Right, right. Um, Irene, I think we're going to table your question to the next segment. We've got uh, just three three more minutes before we, we're going to take a three-minute break, and then we're going to continue on on YouTube. Uh, we're going to end the show on KGRA Radio. Um, so uh, the, one of the things that is never discussed, I just want to bring up uh, uh, quickly, and I hope those... Uh, with you that are listening live, hang in with us. Um, and that is uh, one of the things that you must have heard this many times is they're saying, well, it must be uh, black technology or secret technology. But what's never followed up with is that, well, what about back in 1947 when something was seen going 22,000 miles an hour across you know, the radar screen in Canada and you know, on and on and on? All through history, since the 40s, uh, when we've had this technology, we have seen this unusual, uh, you know, tech, technology. We have no no idea how it how it works, and um, no one ever brings that up. They just say, "Yes, it could be Black Project." I think the point you're making is that if this is a recently discovered U.S. aerospace Black technology, yeah, um, it must have been around since the 1940s because. We've been seeing we've been seeing this phenomenon ever since then, and this is yeah. something that I, I think I acknowledge the inconsistency. I mean, whatever this phenomenon is, it's been around. I'm told from the files that I've seen in Australia's archives, and certainly in your archives in America that I've spent a lot of time looking at. I mean, there are sightings going right back to the 1920s and the 1930s, and if you go back even further to the newspapers that record the mysterious flying airship sightings uh, oh, yes. across America in the late 1890s. I mean, there was a phenomenon even back in the 19th century. So, yeah, I mean, unless America's had black technology that it's been sitting on for the last, um, you know, 150 years, um, there is definitely something advanced which has been operating in uh, on the planet for, you know, a, a good 100-plus years. And I don't think it cuts the mustard to say that this is American black technology, especially not when you have people like Chris Mellon uh, and implicitly also the sort of the findings that are referred to in the UAP task force report. They suggest that it's not American technology. And um, numerous congressmen, senators have basically said that as well, uh, CIA directors. You know, there's an implicit acceptance that whatever this is, it's not something that's being worked on in the black, that America hasn't developed anti-gravitic technology in the black, that it's zooming around in our airspace. I'm not so sure, to be honest, because I, one of the things that intrigues me is an incident that I've covered in my book and also in my documentary where when the Americans became aware of a giant black triangle craft that was seen by multiple witnesses over Northwest Cape and Western Australia in 1991, there was a high level of incuriosity by the American forces at Northwest Cape at the Harold Holt Naval Communication Station, where they literally tried to shut down any investigation and any sort of public awareness of whatever that phenomenon was that was seen by numerous witnesses in and around that area. And indeed, a still continued to be seen to this day. 
We are back. I'm thrilled with our guests this evening. Um, It's been such a great conversation. And uh, we also have Irene uh, helping out and joining in. And welcome back, everyone. So, Irene, I told you before the break that you had the next question. So you're welcome to to ask a question. Thank you, Martin. I just wanted to circle back to the concept of alien. Um, I'm wondering what is wrong with the term alien. Uh, It's a broad term which just says that it's not us. What is wrong with using alien? What I guess the stigma is still there. Ross, your thoughts? I think because I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying to be more careful. I think we we have to acknowledge that the word alien, a bit like the word UFO, has become associated, stigmatised with classic cultural iconography images of little green men and people in flying saucers from other planets. And, and that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is that um, the, the UAP issue demands to be taken seriously, but the semantics that are being used, like alien, UFO, um, I think in many ways they're crippling the willingness of the public and of opinion leaders to actually start engaging with and taking the phenomenon seriously. So maybe it's important to consider coming a little bit their way and adjusting the semantics that's what that's why i've considered using the word uap a lot in my book because it's a less loaded term um alien i think in most people's books even though it's not meant to you're quite right it it indicates something that's you know not known not not human perhaps um i'm drawn to the fact and i'm intrigued by the fact that people like lou elizondo increasingly in some of their interviews have talked about intra terrestrials as possibly being the explanation um, that what we're talking about here might not be not of this world, but part of this world, that it's always being here with us. Um, I'm intrigued by that. And I, I guess I'm just worried that the language that we use, we have to be prepared for the possibility that it's perhaps perceived in, in a way that doesn't assist people's understanding of the issue. So I, I try and use less stigmatized language just for that very reason. Well, I can't. I certainly can't change my show name to Podcast UAP at this point. Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know, speaking of that, uh, I get along very well with Dr. Richard Haynes. Um, that he was uh, involved in NICAP, you know, and he said he would love to be on my show, but he can't be on my show because it said the word UFO. And they were using UAP. This, uh, these, I'm not sure if you know who NICAP is. Are you familiar I, I, with who I, they are? Yeah. I am, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, yeah, there is a stigma and it's too bad. But, um, you know, a lot of things, this just happens in any culture and any, you know, any particular, um, say, trend or word, you know, can be, you know, uh, the little green men type of thing. There was actually a sighting at one point where people actually did say they saw green men. And it made me wonder if that's where that all started from, you know, that, that one sighting where this, uh, this was back in the forties, I think it was, or fifties where they said they saw green, green men coming out of a craft. I mean, I, I guess green is good as any other color, right? Green, gray. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I, mean, I've, I, I just don't know. I mean, I've, I've, I've spoken to people who claimed to have engaged with, non-human life forms um 
And I, I don't know what to make of it. The difficulty that I have as a journalist is it's impossible for me to research it because unless exactly, I can ex yeah. unless I can experiment and verify that phenomenon myself, it's impossible. Whereas what I can do with sightings phenomena is I can talk about radar telemetry, I can talk about video, I can talk about at-fleur imaging, and I can test the veracity of the, the first-person witnesses who corroborate each other, who say that they've seen it. I mean, if there was a I mean, the Ruhr sighting, I'm quite excited to, to hear and see the film that's coming out soon. I think Ariel yes. uh, is Ariel coming Phenomenon. out. Phenomenon. Yeah, Ariel and Phenomenon. I, I don't know okay. when that's coming out, but I'm, I, I love this those year, beautiful little... Coming, great. Yeah, well, I, I love year. those beautiful little kitties that were on the BBC yes. image. Uh, I'm, yes. I think it's an amazing story. And it's interesting because um, we have a, a, a similar parallel that Irene and I know Westall. well, which is the Westall 1966 incident in Australia in Melbourne, in South mm -hmm. Clayton in Melbourne, a suburb of Melbourne. And back in April 1966, kids say they saw three elliptical metallic discs hovering over the school. And uh, one of the people I've interviewed, Terry, she describes literally seeing one of these craft either landed or hovering just above the ground in a clearing known as the Grange in uh, near the school. And um, she could actually hold her hand and feel the heat from just a few metres away. And I mean, that's phenomenal evidence, especially when it's backed by a former teacher of the day, Andrew Greenwood, who says he also saw a craft and that it was metallic, it wasn't a balloon. I mean, they didn't see entities, uh, life forms, nothing came out of those craft, but they're absolutely very clear that, you know, these school kids, hundreds of school kids saw craft, metallic vehicles moving intelligently, doing things that are far beyond acknowledged, known terrestrial human technology. Now, why do we ignore that? We shouldn't. And indeed, the media at the time, again, allowed itself to be snowed. Um, the video, the film that was taken of a news report of the incident is no longer to be found in the archives of the TV station where I once worked. And I know that because I, I spent a good day trying to go through the archives of GTV, the Melbourne Channel 9 studio, trying to find a film canister containing this. And I know a colleague of mine, wow. Shane, Shane Ryans, tried to find yep. the same thing. So, I mean, there are, it, it's very interesting because I'm, I'm always reluctant as a journalist to believe in cover-ups more often than not. You know, we have a saying in my line of work, I'll, I'll, I'll say it politely, always assume a screw up before a, a cover-up. Um, uh, basically, <laughs> more often than not, it's an incompetent bureaucrat that has just failed to do something rather than somebody consciously making an effort to try and hide something. And the reason why is because, frankly, politicians blab. They can't keep their mouths shut. Most leaks come from the very person who's declaiming the leak in the first place. You know, I've actually been leaked stuff by federal ministers in our government, and then they've done a, a leaks inquiry the following week announcing that they're trying to find the source of this outrageous leak that has compromised security in their department. And I know it's the bloody person who's announcing the leaks inquiry in the first place. But the, um, the thing with Westall... And the thing about a lot of these cases that really intrigues me is there is being there has been a cover up. I mean, I'm, I'm in no doubt whatsoever that there was a concerted government military effort to intimidate people from speaking about what they saw 
at Westall in April 1966. Not only were children warned in a school assembly in front of officials that had gathered wearing uniforms saying, you know, do not talk about this. You didn't see what you thought you saw. Go home and forget about it. Uh, One of the teachers, Andrew Greenwood, told me, and it was the first time he'd gone public allowing himself to be identified on camera uh, in an interview that he did for the documentary I made. He actually talked about the fact that an Air Force officer and a man in civilian clothes, probably from our police or intelligence services, knocked on his door at his home late one night, two weeks after the incident, and threatened him. They told him that if he spoke about what he saw, he would lose his job as a schoolteacher, and they would slur him with a defamatory, untrue allegation that he was an alcoholic and that he was drinking on the job. So he kept quiet about it for decades, and then he started speaking about it because like a lot of people, he's angry and annoyed that he felt that he was intimidated to not talk about what he saw. And this is the thing is that if there's nothing there, if there's nothing there, why has there been such a a concerted effort by the military to shut down this issue and to try and stop public debate about this issue for so many decades? And in my dealings with officials and insiders, defence, intelligence people, scientists who've agreed to speak to me confidentially. I'm in absolutely no doubt that the United States, probably also my government, are engaging with the UAP issue far more seriously than they care to admit. And, And that's interesting because the public has been led to believe for decades that this is a subject that should be treated with contempt ridicule and taboo, when the reality is behind the scenes, as we're now getting these begrudging admissions from the Pentagon, it's real. Yeah. Well, think of the Robinson panel back in 1953, uh, was formed basically to, you know, uh, get the ridicule out there and that, you know, to, to calm everyone down. But, you know, I mean, that that's bizarre on its own when you think of it. And, um, you know, it's 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 really something that uh, I have said, well, a number of times on the show that I've said that and you said something very similar is I think that it's very possible that the government really doesn't know what it is. And that's why they're keeping it as secret as possible, because they if they come out and say this vulnerability that we have no way to protect our skies, um, you know, that then who knows what will happen? I mean, that may be their way of thinking. I don't know. That, that's the most benign interpretation on government, and that, that's the one that I'm inclined to go with, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the, 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 the least malevolent interpretation is to assume that our um, defence and intelligence services simply don't like admitting that there is this advanced technology that can kick their butt and, and you know, I I hope that that's the case. The difficulty I have is that there is a preponderance of evidence, I think, that needs to be investigated. And this is where I came to in my book. I'm not saying categorically that I believe that this is true because there's always the risk of disinformation. But I've been told by multiple sources, including one who went on the record, Nat Kobitz, the former director of science and technology development for the US Navy, that there was and is a crash retrieval and back engineering program for UFOs. 
um, he just he told me flatly after many weeks of conversation that he was read into he was security oath briefed into the special compartmented intelligence of a special access program that basically told him all about the retrieval of alien spacecraft. He never saw these craft for himself, but he was told that the US Navy was aware of, the Defense Department was aware of crash retrievals. And that's amazing. Um, amazing. Now, if, if, if that's the case, and, and, and as well as that, you've also got to add to that the comments that have been made by Lou Elizondo about exotic technology being recovered. Dr. Mm-hmm. Eric Davis, who's talked about landed UFOs and crashed UFOs. Um, even Christopher Mellon talked about recovered technology, um, which is you know, doing and displaying phenomenon uh, isotopic ratios that are not part of known terrestrial uh, science. Um, there's a huge hint being dropped. And then you've got the world's greatest newspaper, the New York Times, Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal's excellent story in, I think, July last year, where they they basically quoted sources, including Dr. Eric Davis, talking about technology that had been recovered by the United States that is not of this world. I've independently corroborated that certain congressmen and senators have been briefed in the Congress of the, of the U.S., They've been briefed into the fact that the United States has recovered non-human technology, technology not of this world. Now, if senators are being told that, what's the truth? Now, this is the the thing that I I have trouble with is that, um, you know, uh, know, with a few notable exceptions, the New York Times, Brian Bender, um, Tom Rogan at the Washington Times, uh, Washington Examiner, sorry, you know, a lot of media haven't really quite got their brains around yet the fact that we're no longer in a paradigm where the reality of this phenomenon can be questioned. It's real. You know, the United States Defense Department has admitted it's real. We're now in a new paradigm where we're basically thinking, okay, what is it? Now, my just to this is an elaborate answer to your question, but we were we were starting off on the benign explanation that maybe the um, the military doesn't know what this is, but what if they do? What if they have recovered craft? What if there is recovered technology? And then you look at the way that the UAP report starts with its investigations of these 144 incidents from the 2004 Nimitz incident. Is it just a coincidence that all of the alleged crash recoveries of alleged vehicles and craft occurred well before that 2004 date? Isn't it convenient that we're implicitly constraining the narrative in what's being put to Congress by looking from 2004, by not looking at incidents like Roswell Aztec, uh, Del Rio, you know, all of these alleged crash recoveries that allegedly took place in the 40s and the 50s. I, I literally had a um, an email this morning from a source who uh, was an aviator in a part of Australia who told me that he was aware of a retrieval of some kind of object by both Australian and American military in huge secrecy. Uh, from a part of the Australian outback um, very, very recently. And 
you know, there's always the possibility that it's Russian space technology or Chinese space technology or North Korean weaponry or something. But it puzzled him, and he wanted me to know about it, that there was so much secrecy surrounding the issue and that whatever it was, um, Australia and the US were operating in collaboration and its recovery. Now, I'm, I'm going to chase that. I'm going to ask questions about it. And my colleague, Bill Chalker, here in Australia, um, who's another prominent uh, UAP UFO researcher, he's aware of other allegations of vehicles, craft that have crashed in Australia's outback that have been recovered. Now, I'm not saying they're true, but we should be asking the question when you've got eminent officials, eminent scientists basically saying it's true. When Congress is being told, this is the amazing thing to me, Congress has been briefed about crash recoveries. That's cool. Now, your parliament, your Congress is being told that the United States is in possession of recovered alien technology. I know that for a fact. Why isn't that why isn't that being discussed in mainstream newspapers? And I think part of the issue is not it's not that people are being shut down. There's not men in black sitting in the editor's office saying you're not going to do this story, Sam. <laughs> um, yeah. It's literally it's this taboo. It's the ridicule that's attached. They can't quite get their heads around the reality of this subject matter, and it's going to take a while. I think. I think there's a slow realization occurring that we are now in a new era. I, I agree. Irene, you had a question? Yeah, the elephant in the room is um, we have these um, sightings over the decades, at least with case studies that people like Valet have done. Uh, we know that Socorro, there were entities associated with the landed craft. Um, also, I think the Valensol incident, is that how you pronounce it, in France, similar, similar case. Um, so we're recovering craft. Where are the bodies? Uh, where are the pilots, actually? Are there bodies? What do you know about that, Ross? Um, well, certainly I, I, I know that um, Nat Kovitz, the Director of Science and Technology and Development, when he was read into the crash retrieval program, he told me, for what it's worth, that he was told that alien bodies had been recovered, period. Um, I've since spoken to other people who purport to be in the program. And uh, I also spoke to another guy who was invited onto the program but elected not to for personal reasons. And they all talk about bodies um, or life forms. And then you've got the extraordinary claims of Tom DeLong, who I was initially poo-pooing when I first read about it. I first heard him, I think, on um, either Tom Rogan or um, Joe, sorry, Joe Rogan or um, uh, one of the other podcasts, I think Rojas. And, um, you know, he was making these incredible claims that he was talking to a general, an unnamed general, who was telling him about a recovered life form that had been recovered during the Cold War. And I thought, this is crazy shit. You know, this is a r rubbish. And um, it was really interesting because... Again, I think the media has completely missed the boat here in terms of the significance of the the GRU, the Russian GRU hack, which is which procured the emails, the confidential emails of John Podesta and other people uh, who were on the Democratic 
National Convention database, the DNC database. And in those emails, it shows very, very clearly that Tom DeLong was talking um, to General Neil McCasland, General Michael Carey, serving members of the US Air Force Space Command. Um, he was talking to Robert Weiss, or Weiss, I've forgotten how you pronounce it, of Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. Um, and he was talking to John Podesta, the uh, former chief of staff to Barack Obama, President Obama, a former senior advisor to Bill Clinton and the campaign manager for Hillary Clinton, who was, I think a lot of people expected to become the president in um, 2016. And uh, it's clear from what Tom has told numerous interviewers that that he was told that the United States had recovered a life form as well as craft and that they were involved in a back engineering project. Now, maybe the reason they told Tom is because they hoped that if it did, if ever did leak, Tom DeLong was a punk rocker and, uh, you know, punk rockers are known to be a bit crazy, so nobody would ever take him seriously. But um, I don't think anybody ever expected that the WikiLeaks would procure the DNC emails, and that's a real game-changer. And those are the kind of things that, as a journalist, people like me anchor onto because I can go, okay, so, gee, wow, Tom was talking to General Neil McCasland. You know, wow, he really was talking to Michael Carey. And how strange that Michael Carey wrote the foreword to one of his books. How interesting. What the hell's going on here? Why were these big-time generals talking to Tom DeLong? Were they really talking about disclosure, which is what the emails refer to, what were they going to disclose? And for the life of me, I'm just puzzled as the level of incuriosity by many in the mainstream media who don't ask, well, what the hell were those emails about? Why hasn't Hillary Clinton been doorstopped and asked, Mrs. Clinton, we know that your campaign manager, John Podesta, was involved in conversations with Tom DeLong, General Michael Carey, General Neil McCasland, Robert Weiss of Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, and they were talking about disclosure. What was it that you were planning on disclosing in January of 2017 as president? What, what were you going to talk about? Was it about UFOs, which is clearly the inference from the emails? Why is it that the American media were willing to be led by the nose into a war in Iraq on the false claim of weapons of mass destruction. They didn't do their homework and test the veracity of the claims that were being made by General Colin Powell and other people in the White House at the time. They were so willing to believe and glibly willing to believe that claim. But when people are making incredible claims about recovered alien technology, they just go, oh, yeah, let's just move on. Yeah, sorry, what's the next question? I'm sorry, I just don't, I don't understand it. It's just crazy. And I think a lot of media are now starting to go, you know what? I, I had an American journo from CNN, very well-known journo from CNN, actually rang me the other day and said, oh, Ross, can I just pick your brains? And I took him through what I've just taken you through. And I said, look, you know, when you get the next opportunity to have this official or this official or this official on – why don't you corner them with these questions? And he says, you know, man, I might, I might do that. And I went, great, go for it. And I think there's that change occurring in the media. There's a realisation. The media is like an old battleship coming up the harbour. You know, it can scare the hell out of the natives, but it takes a long time to turn. And so when it's got a direction, a course, you might give the order to change course, 
but it takes a bloody long time for it to shift. And that's what's happening at the moment. The media's been chugging along for the last 60 years, maintaining what my friend Steve Bassett would call the truth embargo, um, basically uh, glibly accepting the blind lies and deceit of the United States Department of Defence and the US Air Force in particular. And now all of a sudden, because of a double backflip with Pike by the Pentagon, which has basically admitted it has been bullshitting all these years, we've now got a situation where the media is going, whoa, whoa, hang on a moment. Do we have to change course here? What's going on? Who's that guy over there saying that? You know, they're now thinking that just maybe they need to actually consider the possibility that things aren't quite as they've been led to believe for the last 60 years. And that's where it's going to start getting interesting. Right. You had a follow-up, Irene? Uh, yeah, the follow-up is um, if, assuming that there are people in the know about recovered pilots of these intelligently controlled vehicles, um, how do they measure up to what um, experiences and abductees have reported? And what do you say about the interest that some of the agencies are showing in people like um, Chris Bledsoe and some of the other experiences? Um I'm really happy you asked me that question, Irene, because a lot of people think because of some inadvertent comments I made a week or two ago in one interview that I'm dismissive of abductees. I'm not. Um, I just don't know what to think about them. There was a, there was a turning point for me I in my research where I, I was introduced to a former very senior official of the FBI, the American Federal Bureau of Investigation, a top cop, if you like. This guy was a really big kahuna in the FBI, and he's now retired. And he told me he had a uh, an extraterrestrial or a, a visitation of some kind with a life form that manifested in his bedroom with him and his wife, and that he'd seen another object hovering in his backyard. And he's not crazy. You know, he's, he's seeing stuff. Um, uh, I can talk, for example, about my friend Bob Hastings, Robert Hastings, who's done the phenomenal work on UFOs and nukes. And then he and um, Bob Jacobs, Dr. Bob Jacobs, both came out with a more recent book where they've talked about and, and acknowledged that they've had these weird encounters with some kind of sentient intelligence that's engaging with them. I'm never going to poo-poo that because I find them to be people of high credibility. They've, they've basically been corroborated. I mean, for example, there was an attempt to try and blacken Bob Jacob's name by suggesting that the the object, the flying saucer that he saw knocking out a, an Atlas missile, nuclear, dummy nuclear warhead in the early 1960s, he was told that it never happened, you know, and it was all rubbish and he never saw what he saw. And then to his great credit, his commanding officer, Florence Mansman, now a professor at Stanford, came out and backed Bob Jacobs' story. So I, I, I've gone through and looked at what these people say. And so when they start saying to me, look, you know, we've also seen entities, we've seen life forms, and people start talking to me too about um, uh, encounters. Uh, I, I'm not going to dismiss it out of hand just because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, you know, whatever it is, it's a phenomena that deserves investigation. And I've spoken privately to some of my many sources on this issue who've told me that we should be looking at that phenomenon. And we also should be looking very, very seriously at cattle mutilations, which is another issue that I actually used part of my documentary to look at. I, I did a whole sequence on 
um, a farmer and his wife in a remote part of Australia who have been seeing strange lights over their property and then finding extraordinary uh, cuts and incisions being made into their animals that are actually not possible for a, a veterinarian. Now, uh, since I made that film, I've spoken to a, um, a veterinarian who operates in a different part of Australia who's told me just the most mind-blowing things that he's seen in animals that, that had their entire um, reproductive organs cored out with no visible damage to the adjoining organs or, or their anuses or their rectums removed. Just extraordinary and no blood. I mean... I've now spoken, I think, to six vets from all over Australia who saw the documentary that I made, and they were encouraging me on and saying, look, I, I don't want to go public because it could damage my business if I spoke about this, but it's real. And so, like a lot of journalists, you know, I'm, I'm very used to the phenomenon of people talking to me on a background basis and wanting to talk to me anonymously, but sharing what they know, and I can match it up with what other people are saying. and does make you think. I mean, I can't reach a conclusion about either abductions or um, experiences or cattle mutilations, but um, they're a paranormal phenomena to the extent that they are unusual. They're extraordinary, but we shouldn't discount them out of hand. Uh, we shouldn't say they're untrue. Um, and I, I certainly don't adopt the view of some scientists who are not, they're not the gatekeepers of science. Just coming back to our friend, the scientist who said that it's definitely not alien. Um, just because some senior scientist says that, you know, these things should be discounted because I don't think it's true, therefore it isn't, that's not science. That's not right. analysis. You know, mm -hmm. the, whole, the whole thing about the scientific method is you attempt to reproduce the phenomenon, you can experiment and verify that phenomenon, you can test it. Um, you can use observations to assess it. Um, that's the whole principle that we've enjoyed since the enlightenment of modern science is to make observations, to verify them and to check them and to, you know, to develop a hypothesis. And it's not good science to just arbitrarily assert it can't be, therefore it isn't. And my attribution to Leslie Kane for that. She writes about this in her book, her excellent book on UFOs. She's equally critical of science, those in science who purport to say, I don't think it's true, therefore it's not. Yeah, That's not science. I don't care whether it's an eminent astrophysicist or a, a biologist who believes that they know what they're talking about. It's not good science. And if they were really put on the spot and properly questioned, well, how can you possibly say that? And in, in this case, it's not good science for me as a journalist to discount phenomena just because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Um, there are strange, stranger things in this heaven and earth, Horatio, than you and I have dreamed of. And apologies to Will exactly. Shakespeare there. Right. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's so many times where, um, you, you, you know, you look at the way this is talked about when it comes to science and, and their, the, their way they treat this, that makes you realize. And it was something that came up in last week's interview that for as long as there's been human uh, societies and, and science, the scientists always think that they know everything there is to know. And, you know, th that there comes the ego. 
and 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 when things change, you know, I mean, science is supposed to be uh, open to change and open to new ideas, but a lot of times, you know, people will just say, like that attitude that Lawrence Krauss had about this. Well, if it was out there, I should know about it. I would know about it already. You know, that, that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, one of the most common arguments I get from friends of mine who are in physics is they say, oh, you know, you can't go faster than light. It's one of the constants. Right. Uh, you know, Einstein proved you can't go faster than light. Therefore, interstellar travel isn't possible. And I, I take great delight in pointing out to them the Albuquerque drive, the, you know, the, 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 essentially the principles of a space-time bubble being created in front of an object and uh, it's compressing space-time in front of that bubble and then it's expanding it behind it. And it's theoretically possible with the right energy and propulsion systems to actually distort space-time and to instantaneously cross the universe. And, you know, the concept of a Star Trekian warp drive really is not just sci-fi fantasy. It's scientifically plausible now. And quantum physics is suggesting that a lot of what previously used to be described as sort of um, paranormal nonsense is, is increasingly more and more plausible. You know, in, in quantum physics, you can, you can have a situation where it's possible to contemplate the possibility of faster-than-light communication because of particles interacting with each other in a way that is apparently not understood yet, but... It, you know, they are instantaneously communicating, even though they're in different like entanglement. parts of the, you know, yeah, quantum entanglement. And, mm -hmm. and I, I find that fascinating. You know, the, the big lesson of science is um, we're gathering new information all the time and things that were previously thought to be impossible are increasingly considered to be possible. Right, right. Where I know we're out of, you have another thing going on and just I a do, little yeah. bit here. I know we're running out of time, but I would like for you, if you could answer this chat question, and that is, uh, what is your perception of the Australian government's position on UAP? I don't think they have one. I mean, I, I've spoken to people at a high level in defense departments and ministerial offices and ministers themselves, um, and that, I, I don't think it registers a blip. I do know that there are people at a high level in our defence and intelligence services who are aware of the sharing of intelligence under the Five Eyes Alliance, where they were amused and interested to see that the Americans are actively monitoring UAP. They're monitoring the phenomena on their intelligence. It's one of the issues that they take note of. Um, but it's not something that I'm told Australia is actively monitoring. We don't have the level of Air Force investigation that took place back in the 1970s when there was, in fact, as there was in America, a very active investigation by the Air Force into every sighting incident. And um, right back to the era where Australia was with the Brits testing nuclear weapons in South Australia and also testing ICBM rocket technology in a place called Woomera. Um, you know, there were sightings going way back then, and they were tracked on radar at thousands of miles an hour, and there were reports written by our Air Force investigating this phenomena that were sent on to the US Air Force for collation. Um, but no, I'm, I'm told that there is no active uh, UAP investigation going on in Australia. But it's funny, I've... I've had a few calls. I, I can tell you there's one very senior minister in uh, Australia's government 
who contacted me in the wake of my UFO story, my phenomenon documentary. And he, um, he said to me, look, uh, I would never go on the record about it, Ross, but I, I do want you to know that I, I saw a UFO once. And um, it's interesting because, you know, he, he's frightened of speaking publicly about it because he knows he'll get ribbed by his colleagues. But um, uh, I said, I took the opportunity to ask him, I said, you know, uh, as far as you know, is there any monitoring or um, awareness of this issue? And he went, no. How about that? Well, thank you so much. And once more about your book and where can someone find that? Uh, in Plain Sight, uh, a, a, an investigation into UFOs and impossible science is available at the moment in print in Australia only. It's coming out in America in October. Uh, I don't know why uh, HarperCollins internationally decided to delay publication in the US, but I'm huh. told it is it is available on Kindle and um, audio books in the US at the moment. But of course, everybody should have a copy in print by their bedside table. <laughs> um, right. And uh, th- that'll be coming out in um, October. I think in England, it's coming out in a couple of weeks in mid-August. And um, uh, I will be posting uh, on my website, www.inplainsight-book.com. I'll post some links that show where you can buy it in the US at a discount and also in Australia and the UK at a discount. Excellent. Ross, I hope you'll consider coming back on the show someday. It was a fascinating uh, talk. I really, really enjoyed it. I loved it too. It's nice to be able to talk to you and your audience. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Thank you very much. You take care. You too. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Uh, Irene, thank you so much for actually you are the one who uh, connected me with with Ross. So thank you so much. My pleasure, Martin. And I just want to say it's the perfect Christmas present uh, for any of your uh, skeptical <laughs> yes. relatives and friends. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right, Irene, take care. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. Bye. Bye now. All right, everyone. So we'll be back next week. And uh, I have to get a confirmation from the guests. I don't have it, um, but we'll definitely be back next week. And remember to keep your eyes to the sky. Thank you for watching. 